Welcome to this episode of A Good Service on All Other Lines, a story and song podcast written by David Head and Matt Glover. This is a narrative show told in five parts, so if you're joining us partway through, we'd recommend going back and listening from the beginning. Otherwise it won't make sense. Unfortunately, that was Matt Glover. I'm David Head. Please enjoy the show. The story of you and them leaves. There are few things in life, you think, that better symbolise your miserable self than a wretchedly soggy Cornish pasty. Pasties seem like a good idea. On the face of it, they're the perfect food. Golden, crusty pastry stuffed with hot, thick gravy, tender roast meat and a selection of vegetables. A new pasty has all the potential of a perfect field of unblemished snow. Like you did at one point. But by this stage in life, you've largely ruined it by running in circles and pissing everywhere, resulting in disgusting, sodden yellow clumps, not dissimilar from whatever it is that's currently masquerading as a potato, wrapped inside the damp cardboard claiming to be pastry. Yes, you and this Cornish pasty have much in common. You're feeling a bit of an idiot, which is actually a sensation you're mostly used to. But today's is a very special kind of idiocy. Tins with a deeply private embarrassment that's somehow made worse by the fact that no one knows. It's been ten years to the day since you met them. You were 17 and, frankly, awful. A tightly wound ball of contradictions, adolescent arrogance and raging insecurities waging a constant war against one another. And, no matter which one was winning at any given time, you were certainly losing. You'd made the decision to visit London for the day, the nation's great capital, where streets are paved with gold, where fortunes are won and lost. This was the British equivalent of heading west in the old America. And while we'd never be so crass as to chase a dream, we might casually pursue a whim. It was, in short, a pretentious quest to try and find some kind of deeper meaning to life before you left friends and family behind to embark on whatever chapters came next in what you were sure was going to be an exciting and important life. Unsurprisingly, you were wrong. But you did meet them. The meeting was unexpected, as generally most significant meetings are. It's a rare thing indeed for two souls to collide and recognise something in each other, and when it does happen, you'd have to be a right tosser to respond to the romantic serendipity of the universe with, yeah, sort of expected that really. Though, in fairness, your younger self was most definitely a tosser. And there's some evidence to suggest your current self might be one too. You'd only just arrived at Marlebone when your paths crossed. It's one of those incidents that you know you'll always remember. A light tap on the shoulder and a voice saying, you look lost. And there they were. Try as you may, you've never been able to remember the specifics of the conversation that followed. Your brain had been overwhelmed by the very presence of them and had stopped taking notes, or if it did take notes, they've somehow been misplaced in your internal filing system. In all honesty, your internal filing system is pretty shitty and management would do well to introduce new process across the entire company. What you do remember, though, are the small details. The sound of the first time they laughed, for example, sticks out very clearly. You remember thinking that if you'd known you were going to meet them, you'd have chosen different shoes. That that thought wouldn't dislodge itself when you missed nearly 30 seconds of conversation because you were fixated on footwear. They'd come to the city too as some gesture towards the last days of youth, but unlike you, they wanted to see all the famous landmarks and tourist traps. 
privately you thought this was predictable trite bullshit, unbecoming someone of your obvious intelligence and coolness, although publicly you went with, hmm, seems a little cliché. They laughed at that. Laugh number two. They convinced you that it wasn't clichéd or predictable, but a rite of passage. And they painted a picture of the future where you'd never seen the sights of one of the greatest cities in the world, even though it was on your doorstep, just because you'd felt too cool as a teenager. You blushed a little at how see-through you were. The day was giddy and glorious, a whistle-stop tour of rich history, richer tourists and distinctly cheap souvenirs. Each moment seemed a dream. You rode the London Eye together late in the afternoon, the sun not yet setting but definitely reaching the point in its working day where it starts checking emails and pretending to be busy as it waits to clock off. And, in that golden light of solar procrastination, you'd been struck by how beautifully it framed them. But how they looked like a photograph. A sun-bleached Polaroid in real life. You couldn't avoid the feeling that this was someone you wouldn't get the chance to know, but would only ever remember. And the pain you felt at that point was a particular subgenre of heartbreak. The kind with a heart in question, yours, is full of hope, not love. But regardless of your growing suspicions, the afternoon turned to evening and you found yourself sitting on the south bank of the river, staring at the Thames and discussing your hopes and plans as starlight sparkled off the water. You talked about what you'd both do over the next year of your life and then the next five and the next decade. For your own part, you were full of lofty dreams and goals and scorn for those whose ambitions didn't match your own. Spoiler alert, so very few of your goals were ever achieved. Arguably, few were ever pursued. For their part, they were ambitious, sure, but cautious. They spoke in these lovely abstract terms about dreams being like leaves, about how easy it was to have them when they were new and flawless and green, but how life inevitably would get in the way and blow them from their branches. It was what you did with these that counted, they said. How you gathered your fallen dreams and their many hues of orange and cobbled something beautiful together from that. Flawed, but real. Finally, the day came to an end. Back where it began, at the station. The last train approaching. You were going to ask for a number or an email address or possibly an MSN Messenger username because this was a decade ago, but they stopped you before you could ask. Let's not ruin a perfect day, they said. And your heart did that annoying, painful, skippy thing that hearts do when they hear the bad news they've been expecting all along. Instead, they proposed you strike a deal. Ten years to the day, you would meet up. You would compare your decade, see what had and hadn't come true, see what you'd achieved and what you'd become. See what you'd made from your leaves. Unfortunately, you suspect you've proven to be an evergreen. Endlessly dreaming and a bit of a prick. Just as well, then, that they didn't show you lie to yourself, taking another lukewarm bite from your turgid pasty, the only food available at Marlebone at this time of night. You couldn't have stood to see the disappointment in their face. You don't know why you stayed all day, or what false hope powered you as you walked about London alone. With hindsight, you should maybe have specified a time and a place to meet beyond just ten years into the future. But, deep down, you know it doesn't matter. And so here you are, waiting for the final train of the night. You and the greasy dinner that serves as a metaphor for your existence. Except no. No, that's not true, you tell yourself. You're still here. Somewhere inside you is the same beating heart of that hormonal horror from years gone. There are still some flames of passion burning in there, maybe not as bright as they once did, but they're there. 
You've come on a fool's errand, embarked upon a hopeless quest born of romance, all to see a person you knew for exactly one day and fell in love with within the space of ten minutes. That's fantastic, you think. That's the stuff songs are made from. And if this were a song, then this, this moment right here is the big refrain. The moment where your dreams fall from your branches and hope seems lost, but you know it isn't. So you pick those leaves up and you fashion a foolish and a beautiful golden crown. So that's what you're doing. All of which is a long way to say that you will wear your fool's crown with glee. You toss your patty to one side and march head up high towards the platform. A melancholy pride burns in you and you can't help but delight in the fact that you can still feel so much, so strongly, all at once. Then, just as you're about to put your ticket through the barrier, there's a tap on your shoulder and a voice says, You look lost. And there they are. I won't And I say I don't Not sure it matters what we say There's only so much time You'll have to toe the line The toll is on its way But when it's all done, I'll know 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 Here's not the place for pride If we've got nothing to hide Why are we so good at covering tracks? Placed our hearts and minds Left no directions to find Needles in a haystack But when it's all done, I'll know 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 And this old romantic's alive Autumnal dreams never die This soul romantic's alive Autumnal dreams never die They never die And it's a long way 
It's a long way, a long way to say. It's a long way, a long way to say. It's a long way, a long way to say. Story of the Commentator. The Fight. The Commentator observes the dregs of humanity that make up the carriage of his midnight train. The night smells like violence. He smiles. Welcome to this evening's edition of Ultimate Train Fighting, he thinks to himself. Boozy, belligerent, and bloody spectacular. Alka Combat. He sizes up the evening's combatants. Glorious physical specimens. What training goes into looking like these two men do? Years of crushed dreams and festering resentments. In the red corner is a man with a face that even gravity has abandoned. The commentator calls him to swords because he looks like a waxwork that's started to melt. So drunk, even his skin has given up. He's opted for the traditional pre-game warm-up of slumping across two seats and staring into space. In the blue corner is his opponent. The commentator calls him the onion, because he's spherical, pale, and by this point in life, pickled. The onion is indulging in a pre-fight isotonic sports beverage. The drink of choice? Ah, yes, thinks the commentator. Tepid M&S lager. Delicious. The commentator notices how the onion lets his vacant gaze slide across the carriage, trying to look away from the waking horror of his own existence, seeking a challenger. I believe we are about to witness a duel, ladies and gentlemen. Here come the battle cries. Are you looking at me? <laughs> the power of it. The poetry. The swords will make his counter cry now. What did you say, mate? Pause for effect. The fuck did you just say to me? The commentator can't argue with the tactics on display there. Onion attempts to stand up, but he lacks the momentum to see the move through, so he's going to try and swerve his opponent with a lie. Didn't say anything. Tussauds now stands, a physics-denying feat of acrobatics. The commentator doesn't know how his knees support both him and the self-loathing he surely carries. Onion has staggered up, swaying like the lid of a discarded polystyrene takeaway box in the breeze. <laughs> oh, quivers the commentator. Look at these mighty titans. Nose to nose. Blood vessels burst from years of drink, dappling their skin like cranberries in a Wensleydale. Like dragons across the sky of Westeros, they are now fighting with their breath. Gaseous clouds of pure poison, gums ravaged by time and regret. This is chemical weapons-grade halitosis, the kind of shit the UN should really be investigating. Neither one shows signs of backing down. Glorious, thinks the commentator. True gladiators. You want some, do you? Shouts to swords, and the commentator laughs to himself, because the answer is obviously no. No, he doesn't want some. No one ever wants some. What the onion wants is the chance to revisit life choices. Maybe try telling his ex-wife he loved her before she slammed the door for the last time. 
He wants to have been more present in the lives of his kids, to have thanked his dad properly before he died, to wake up every morning without the crushing weight of shame and guilt and misery. He wants to have chosen a career he cared about instead of soullessly chasing rings like he's Sonic the Shitting Hedgehog. He wants to be better, not fighting strangers on a midnight train. And, to the commentator's horror, he realises that The Onion said all of that out loud. Literally aloud, his brain thought and his mouth just shat it out verbatim. He's never witnessed such scenes. To Swords doesn't know what to do. He wasn't prepared for his opponent to show such sudden self-awareness and vulnerability. And who could blame him, thinks the commentator, smelling blood in the water. To Swords can finish this with a single strike. He raises his arm and... Holy shit, thinks the commentator. Are they... are they hugging? Oh God, they are. He can barely believe it. It's like watching two sinking ships capsize onto one another. It turns the commentator's stomach to see such a sickening display of humanity. This wasn't what he wanted. He just wanted to see a nice fight, not this soppy bullshit. If he'd wanted to see drunk men hug each other, he'd go on a stag do. He rubs at his eyes. He's not crying, he tells himself. It's just watering a little bit. After all... That's always the risk with onions. Hello, Christine. It's just me again. Charles. It's, um, well, it's, it's getting on for midnight now. Still no sign of you and haven't heard from you. I'm still at the station, though, which, as I say it out loud, seems a touch odd, really. Bordering on pitiful. I, I thought it would be a romantic gesture, but no... No, I don't quite think it is. I was never much good at taking a hint. Possibly that time when you married someone else should have been the giveaway we weren't meant to be. Anyway, I understand if you did decide not to come. I know circumstances are, um, difficult. But please, please let me know that you're safe. It would be a bit of a double whammy to find out that you'd not only stood me up but had in fact been murdered too. So maybe I'll wait just a few more minutes, just in case. A Good Service and All of the Lines is recorded at the Abbey Road Institute. It's written and performed by David Head and Matt Glover, produced by Carlos Brissio, David Head and Matt Glover. Sound, engineering and mixing by Carlos Brissio, cello and backing vocals performed by Dom Main. Additional vocal talent is provided by Claire Reedy, Michael Rossi and Susie Jacobson. If you've enjoyed it, please leave us a good review. You can find us on all social media platforms at The David and Matt. This podcast is supported with public funds from Arts Council England. Thank you for listening.